0: Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for this chance to gather. We pray that you would open our hearts to the truth that is expressed through your word and through Lewis's understanding of what it meant to share in your word. Lord, we pray your blessing on our time together this night. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So any guesses on what the music is? Lucius is disqualified (laughs) because he used Shazam. (laughs) Yeah. I'll give you a clue, you've heard something by these people before. Yes, the Ohalos. The last thing we heard from the Ohalos was the lament of Eustace Scrub from the Chronicle of Narnia. This one is called Dear Wormwood, which is uh, worth worth your time. Yeah, from the Screwtape Letters, worth your time to go check it out sometime on YouTube. Um, the lyrics are really good. So I would encourage you to uh, check it out. And one of the things that's just interesting about it is it is an example of of how Lewis's relevance shows up in some of the most unexpected places. Uh, You would not expect sort of indie folk groups that are popular with millennials to be writing lyrics based out of stories written by an Oxford professor in the 1940s. It's kind of unusual. But it's just as an example of how Lewis's appeal reaches across uh, time, and in some ways Lewis is even more relevant today, I believe, than when he was actually writing. So tonight we're going to continue our excursion into apologetics, and there are three handouts back there um, that I would commend to you. There's one that is uh, Screwtape Letter number 13 that we're going to talk about later tonight. Uh, there is another one that is an excerpt from... Uh, Lewis's last full book that was called Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, that we're going to talk about. And then there is a little-known and somewhat difficult but rewarding essay with the unlikely title Blue Spells and Flalenspheres, A Semantic Nightmare. And you might think the essay is a nightmare, but if you are um, scuba diving, I would... Highly, highly recommend it to you. If you're snorkeling, just leave it alone. If you're on the beach, don't worry about it. But if you are scuba diving, it is really worth getting into because it is essentially Lewis's theology of metaphor. And Lewis, I think, is arguably the greatest user of metaphor in theology of all time. Going back to the ancients, even his gift metaphor is remarkable, and this essay helps explain a little bit about why he believes metaphor is so important. So it's a little bit heavy going because it's an academic work, uh, but it will reward you if you persevere. And the title, in case you're thinking, I'm so ignorant, I don't know what these things are, I've never heard of a blue spell or a sphere." Don't feel bad. Lewis made those words up, okay? So blue spell is a con- contraction of several different words that he, he was kind of making a point that you could reduce Kantian philosophy to this, and it started off being multiple words, the first one being blue, and then it ended up being contracted to this. And um, <laughs> originated in his understanding of a um, benighted group of flatlanders and their understanding, or lack thereof, of certain things. And that kind of contracted to flound spheres. But it's also just an example of, when you see blue spells in flound spheres, well, I shouldn't say this, when I see that, and I will admit I'm a nerd, but when I see that, I think, I want to know what that is. What is that? Those are crazy-sounding words. And you know, it, it allows you to um, want to get in there. So on this whole idea of the ministry of apologetics, we talked about this last week. So this is just a quick review. Apologia, of course, is the Greek word that means defense. It's like a legal defense. It's not an apology. Lewis is not apologizing for his faith. He's not saying, I have something to apologize for. It is a defense. It is a legal term. And we're all called upon to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And I would suggest to you that this is one of the major failures of the church in our time is we are not good at this. We're good at judging other people and telling them what's wrong with what they think. But we're not so good at the flip side of that. So... We've talked about in Lewis's own conversion two major factors, deep friends that asked him thoughtful questions that even though he was an intimidating person uh, to talk to in some ways, even though he was very warm and gracious because he was so smart and such an aggressive evangelistic atheist for his (laughs) friends to have this kind of question-answer dialogue with him. That was a real risk on their part. They could have just gotten blown out of the water. Uh, But those, the good thing about Lewis is he was intellectually honest. And when he heard questions, he thought about them. And a lot of those haunted him and eventually led him to start reading, which is the second part, Christian writers who really helped him to grow in his understanding that faith might actually be true. Um, Chesterton and George McDonald chiefly among those. So as he uh, converted to Christianity and then became an apologist for Christianity, he thought about three different spheres of how to do this. One is defending the integrity of what the Christian faith says, that it's reasonable to believe. The second is commending it, talking about why it's important. And the third one is translating it, taking Christian concepts like the atonement which if you talk to a person on the street about the atonement, they will just glaze over and walk off. You have to unpack what that means. So that's part of the task of the apologist. And we talked last week a little bit about this is an urgent task. We're always one generation away from losing the Christian faith because it has to be proclaimed to others in order to carry on. So we live in an age where apologetics is really important because we, for probably one of the first times in recent history, have an evangelically atheistic culture that is trying to persuade people. It's gone away from just relativism, whatever you think is fine. It's gone more in the direction now of trying to persuade people that it is bad to be a Christian. If any of you saw the ridiculous article in the New Yorker about Chick Fil A <laughs> yeah. that came out this past week, if you have not read that, that is exactly the kind of just ridiculous, stupid cultural attack. I mean, and it basically says the insidious—I can't remember the title, but it—it's something. It basically makes Chick Fil A sound like the evil empire.
1: <laughs> hmm? he, said, he said it was creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So so you can go online and
0: just. Yes, just look up Chick Fil A -A, New Yorker. There's been a big blow up about it. But part of it is that if any, it would be such a great thing if I were teaching logic to take that thing and just destroy (laughs) it because it is so (laughs) bad. It's so bad. It makes me want to just. Well, anyway, we're not going to get stuck on that. But we we need to be apologists. And Lewis, one of the things about Lewis that people don't appreciate, and y'all probably begin to do that now, having read some of these essays, if you've read some of Lewis's academic work, when you first read it, you're just like, what? Because the, the vocabulary is so way up there compared to what most of us are used to at least me uh, that it is very hard to take in and when Lewis was asked by the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral to go around and talk to these RAF uh, guys who are in the barracks in a time period in World War II when the RAF is experiencing almost a 50% casualty rate on every mission these are people that it's cut to the chase they want to know what the truth is about God and spiritual life, Lewis had to learn a whole new language. He had to learn how to relate to people that didn't even have high school educations and explain all of this theology in terms that they could understand. And he became very adept at doing that. And a couple of the major works are listed up there. And then last week, uh, one of the handouts, The Address to the Welsh Youth Leaders and Pastors, highly commend that to you. Uh, I wish every clergy person in the world had to read that because it will make you think. But basically, he is just talking about how important it is to believe in the historic tenets of the Christian faith and not invent your own religion. Uh, Really, really good. But he talks in there also about how important it is to learn to authentically connect with people. And this is one of the things that most of us, and I'm sorry I'm generalizing, y'all might be really good at this, Um, but most people I know, and I know I myself, this is an area that I struggle with and you have to think about because particularly, especially if you're a clergyman and you work in a church, um, you have to get out of your church mindset to think about how do you connect people where this is maybe only a tangential part of their life or not a part of their life at all. So... And the other thing that Lewis talks about here is you've got to be able to translate everything so that it appeals to imagination as well as reason. Because if people don't... If they're not attracted by some vision that you've painted, they don't care whether what you think is true or not. The the culture that we live in, that emotional appeal, appeal, the meaning appeal... That is the matter that really is important. People will believe things that are ridiculous. The Christian faith, of course, is not. But we have to draw them in through the story to begin with. And that's one of the things that Lewis really gives to us. So um, there's this little quotation up here uh, from Lewis, uh, even though it's not in quotation marks. The first part is his. Glen and shallow rationalism is intellectually unpersuasive and existentially unsatisfying. There are limits to what we can work out about the meaning of life for ourselves. We need to be shown. And the idea is that just facts are not enough. You can put out all the facts in the world, but unless there's somebody, a reason that someone should care about those facts, they don't care whether they're facts or not. They could just as well be made up. So The glib and shallow rationalism just the easy quick intellectual defense is not enough in our culture. It's important to have an intellectual defense we'll get to that in a minute but that's not what the main deal is and one of the things in this last little paragraph the importance of showing that Christian faith is reasonable and not irrational because in most schools today people are taught that it is irrational to be a Christian, that Christianity has been disproven and that only stupid people think that Christianity is true and that once you're educated, you move beyond that. And some of the schools in Charleston, one of the things that happens very frequently in freshman biology, when there is the debate about evolution, the way evolution is usually taught is that there are two perspectives on evolution. One is the Darwinian perspective on evolution, which every person with a brain in the world believes. Or, there are these poor, benighted people that mostly live in Tennessee in the mountains (laughs) that have this idea that God made the world in seven 24-hour days 3,000 years ago. And that that's that's the choice. It's one or the other. Which, of course, if you have studied this at all, is absolutely ridiculous. You've got, actually, there is atheistic evolution that is on one extreme. You come this way a little bit, you get to theistic evolution. Come a little bit more this way, Christian evolution. Come a little bit more this way, um, and you get uh, intelligent design, and you get Intelligent design that coexists with Christian evolution, and you get intelligent design that doesn't have evolution and macroevolution and microevolution, and then way, 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 way on that other extreme are those people in Tennessee, and that is, that is not that is not what the real choice is. But students are presented with the choice in exactly those terms, and I've even seen some of the videos that are used in the usually. The person that's representing the people in Tennessee talks like bias, and, you know, and you've got that versus an Oxford professor. And so what are you going to believe if you're a ninth grader? You know, This is why we have got to equip ourselves and our children and the people in our faith communities to be able to talk about these things. Because there are plenty of people who are genius, brilliant Christians in academia that don 't believe atheistic evolution, so we 're going to talk more about that but this this whole idea from the new atheism i don 't know how many of you read um, I would encourage you to read some of the new atheism books, um, whether it is um, Stephen Hawking or some of the other people that write in this field of. Uh, because you ca- you have to read them to appreciate the vitriol that 's in them it's not it's not they 're not nice books it 's like it's a lot of them are it 's bad to be Christian and Christians should be stopped so given that um, it is important that we learn to express the contrary point of view so just again here, uh, the whole idea that reason and imagination need to be wedded together in apologetics. And Austin Farrer, who's quoted up here, uh, one of Lewis's great friends, he was the warden of Keeble College, Oxford, the great Anglo-Catholic college at Oxford. He's probably the greatest Anglican theologian of the 20th century. Uh, Letters to Malcolm uh, is actually dedicated to him by Lewis. Uh, but he really understood what Lewis is trying to do in Apologetics. And the second part from McGrath, McGrath is one of the best people writing about Lewis's use of imagination in Apologetics, and it proceeds out of that other chapter about the story shaped world. If you haven't read that chapter in the book, um, if you have the book, I really commend that one. It's very important. Uh, But this idea is that you've got to have both of those things. They're part of the same whole. So uh, a little quotation from Blue Spells and Flaon spheres. I really encourage you to try to say that out loud if you can. <laughs> it really is so much fun. Uh, but in in Blue Spells and Floon spheres, part of what Lewis is trying to do is to explain why metaphor is so very important, and basically, what he says is that all our truth are all but a few fragments. Is one by metaphor. For me, reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. Imagination is not the cause of truth, but its condition. Now, that is something you could chew on for a long time, and I would encourage you to do that, but not right now. So, (laughs) but what I want you to see there. Is that imagination is the organ of meaning. And the thing that so many people in our culture are desperately seeking, whether they know it or not right now, is meaning. There's a lot of sense of people in our culture that life is purposeless, that life is drudgery, that I'm just out there. What point does my life have? I'm working and working and I can't get out of my parents' basement. You know, there's a whole um, distress level about meaning and purpose that there hasn't really been since the early '60s. So it is—it's something that gives us a bridge. If we can learn how to build that bridge to people, that we can actually walk across um, to help draw people into the faith. Okay. So that that quotation is really important. And this next little part—if uh, you have your handouts handy, it's on your handout. Um, from Letters to Malcolm. And in this letter, uh, Letters to Malcolm is a book that is composed of fictional letters. They're not real letters, but the, the conceit of the book is that Lewis is having a correspondence with someone who wants to learn how to deepen his prayer life. And this guy's name is Malcolm. And so Lewis is writing... and he uses this format very effectively to bring up a lot of points about prayer. And so this letter is about the idea of prayer as worship and adoration. And Malcolm has expressed the idea that it's hard to do that. That it's easy to pray for I need money for the grocery bill or Aunt Susie is having an operation. Those things we can... But when we are faced with the idea of we should pray to worship and adore God, we run out of gas pretty quickly and feel like it's time for a snack. So part of what he's trying to do here is explain the idea that worship and adoration is something that we are wired for, Mm -hmm. that we are wired for it, but we have lost touch with the wiring. We threw out the instruction book. And so I just want to read this first little part that's up here. He says, it is, well, I'll start with the second paragraph. You first taught me the great principle, begin where you are, which is a great principle for prayer. (laughs) I had thought one had to start by summing up what we believe about the goodness and greatness of God. By thinking about creation and redemption and all the blessings of this life, you turned to the brook and once more splashed your burning face and hands and the little waterfall and said, why not begin with this? And it worked. Apparently, you have never guessed how much. That cushiony moss, that coldness and sound and dancing light were no doubt very minor blessings compared with the means of grace and the hope of glory. But then they were manifest. So far as they were concerned, sight had replaced faith. They were not the hope of glory. They were an exposition of the glory itself. So hold that thought for a minute. Part of what Lewis is trying to get here, get at here is that, well, let me back up a minute. One of Lewis's pet peeves with modernity was that people spent way too much time inside. And he believed that part of the problem that we have with Christian faith is that He has a very high view of natural revelation, that God has put a lot of pointers to himself in the things of the world that are beautiful. And when we isolate ourselves by not ever being outside, we lose touch with those things in the same way that the farmer understands far more about the providence of God than the businessman. Because the farmer, do what he may, can't make it rain, can't make the sun come out, and he can't make seed grow. It all depends on something that is beyond him. So with that in mind, we're going to take a field trip. So if you wouldn't get up and follow me for just a minute. So for our field trip, the point is to be out here just inside the gate of St. Philip's and taking a moment to actually engage the scene that most of us have walked by literally hundreds of times. And I want to direct your attention to these three trees that are over here just to our right, and I want you to get to where you can see them clearly. And you'll notice in a row that there is first on the left the dogwood, which is all leafed out now, and then next to it a very large crepe myrtle, uh, which is also leafed out, but with no buds. The dogwood, of course, having been the earliest one in Charleston to bloom. And then next to the crepe myrtle, this magnificent, huge magnolia tree on which you can already see the buds of those very fragrant blossoms that will come to bloom probably sometime during the month of May. And as we look at these trees, I want us to think about recovering our sense of wonder. And part of the reason that that is so important is that in Lewis's view, God gives us through nature these glimpses of his character and creativity and love and beauty. But that part of the problem of our modern age is that unlike centuries And centuries and centuries beforehand, we now spend most of our time indoors and many people are insulated from ever really noticing the beauty that is all around us. So I want us to first look at this dogwood. I want you to notice the rough, blotchy bark on that tree trunk. And I want you to notice, as you look at that tree trunk, its economy of architecture. And then gaze over at the crape myrtle and look at the amazing beauty of all of the branching of the architecture of that tree. And then look at the magnolia and see that big, wide, solid trunk that then branches with some large branches above. Each of them is totally different in terms of the architecture of the tree, but they're all Beautiful, And as we look at the dogwood, I want you to think about each one of those leaves, each one with veining, each one processing that warm sunlight that was on them throughout this afternoon, and using that nourishment to help that tree grow. And the same thing happening with the crepe myrtle tree and the magnolia tree. But as you look at the leaves on each of those trees, notice how different they are. The narrow leaves on the crepe myrtle, small, many of them would fit in the palm of your hand, versus the magnolia tree with its gorgeous, big, dark green, glossy leaves that the light way up there in the top of that tree still is playing on where it sparkles and shines. And even though we have a little bit of tourist noise in the background, if we're quiet, we can listen and hear the sound of the wind in those leaves. And each one of those trees has a slightly different sound in it. And as you contemplate those trees and look at the leaves moving in the air as if in a dance to an unheard music, I want you to think about the fact that all of that tree, each one of the three, all three of those trees, from the root deep down in the darkness of the earth up to the very tip top of the tree, which in the dogwood is about 10 feet up, and the crepe myrtle about two stories high, and in the magnolia tree, four stories tall, from the very top the tiniest leaf coming out on the top down to the bottom, each part of that tree is throbbing with life, with the miracle of life. Every cell of bark, every cell in the leaf, every bit of sap and everything else that is part of that tree is throbbing with life. And where did that life come from? How could it be just from the cosmic ooze It makes no sense that there would be these three really different, really beautiful trees with three very different types of blossom if you live in a world that is only about utility. There is a glory in each part of these trees. There is a glory that is reflective of the glory of God. And the point of all of this and of this contemplation is to teach us to see with wonder. Not to see with wonder because nature is to be worshipped, but because nature is a reflection of the one who made it. Of God the Father, God the Creator. That these beauties that surround us lead us to understand something of who God is and point us to not worship the creation, but to worship the creator. This natural revelation is something that is deeply part of our Christian heritage, but we are losing touch with. And in our automated way, we are so entranced by our iPhones that we can't get our eyes off of them for long enough to behold the beauty that is all around us. I want you to turn around for a minute and to look across the street and see those beautiful leaves on the tops of those trees, those thin little branches that are swaying in the breeze with the setting sun behind, the little sliver of moon above, and the birds that are wheeling up there deep in the sunset sky. And think about just the incredible beauty that is all over the world at this moment, this is one of those bridges that we've been talking about tonight in apologetics, that when we see these pleasures and experience this beauty, these are things that are real with a capital R and true with a capital T, and they're things that can be seen and observed by people who are not remotely people of faith, but begin to unpack with them from whence does all this wonder and beauty come? And it can lead to fruitful conversations. So we're going to go back inside now. But I want to encourage you that as you walk through this week, take five minutes each day somewhere outside to just look to see what God has placed all around you. And as you come back through the door, look at that golden sunlight just on the west side of that beautiful steeple. And thank God for the beauty that is there.
1: All
0: right, so the point of all of that was to try to open up your imagination a little bit and help you realize that cultivating that sense of wonder and learning to see is really, really, really important. And, Dorothy, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Would you go to Felicia's desk and get the little vase and bring it here that's on there? Um, one of the One of the things that we are not good at is stopping to appreciate beauty. And beauty is one of the chief pointers to God. And as Daniel was just pointing out, Romans instructs us about natural theology. It instructs us that God reveals himself to us. So, thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to pass this around and there's the good old saying, stop and smell the roses. There's a reason for that. These um, Yes, and I want you particularly to smell this one, the palest pink, most clustered one. Um, and just think again about how God made and designed each one of these things. It really is just remarkable. If you think about how does that magnolia tree take water that falls from the sky, which is pretty amazing to begin with, (laughs) water that falls from the sky, and it goes into that root and somehow ends up creating a blossom that's three and a half stories up. It's amazing. And the more that we can recover that, the better. So I just want to read you a little bit of this, and if you have the handout, you can follow along, or if you would rather, close your eyes and just listen if you promise you won't fall asleep. Right,
1: if at the end you have a moment for Elizabeth O'Neill, part of one of your favorite people on earth, <laughs> that reiterates what you're saying and sets it here in Charleston, I'd love to have We one. We shall see. <laughs> All
0: right. So um, this is starting with the yet you were not. So... Yet you were not, or so it seemed to me, telling me that nature or the beauties of nature manifest the glory. No such abstraction as nature comes into it. I was learning the far more secret doctrine that pleasures are shafts of the glory as it strikes our sensibility. As it impinges on our will or our understanding, we give it different names, goodness or truth or the like. But its flash upon our senses and mood is pleasure. But aren't there bad, unlawful pleasures? Certainly there are. But in calling them bad pleasures, I take it we are using a kind of shorthand. We mean pleasures snatched by unlawful acts. It is the stealing of the apple that is bad, not the sweetness. The sweetness is still a beam from the glory. That does not palliate the stealing. It makes it worse. There is sacrilege in the theft. We have abused a holy thing. I have tried since that moment to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. I don't mean simply by giving thanks for it. One must, of course, give thanks, but I mean something different. How shall I put it? We can't, or I can't, hear the song of a bird simply as a sound. Its meaning or message, that's a bird, comes with it inevitably, just as one can't see a familiar word in print as a merely visual pattern. The reading is as involuntary as the seeing. When the wind roars, I don't just hear the roar, I hear the wind. In the same way, it is possible to read as well as to have a pleasure. Or not even as well as. The distinction ought to become, and sometimes is impossible, to receive it and to recognize its divine source are a single experience. This heavenly fruit is instantly redolent of the orchard where it grew. The sweet air whispers of the country from whence it blows. It is a message. We know we are being touched by a finger of that right hand at which there are pleasures forevermore. I'm going to say that again. We know we are being touched by a finger of that right hand at which there are pleasures forevermore. There need be no question of thanks or praise as a separate event. Something done afterwards. To experience the tiny theophany is itself to adore. Theophany means an appearance of God. Gratitude exclaims very properly how good of God to give me this. Adoration says what what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this. One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. So what he's trying to say here, this is something you're going to have to go home and read to really get it. But what he's trying to say is that these shafts of glory, these instances of beauty that show up all around us should point our hearts and our minds immediately to God as creator of all of these things. And, at least in my own experience, when you are talking with someone who is an atheist, and you begin to unpack a little bit about some of this beauty, it really makes them start thinking. Because most of the time, they haven't really thought in those terms. They think about utility, but they don't think very much about beauty. So it's a concept that we need to reclaim. And part of what Lewis's great gift in apologetics is is to tell us that there are all of these pleasures, there are all of these beauties, there are all of these goodnesses that God has scattered abroad in our world, and each one of them is something that can be experienced as pleasure, whether you're a Christian or an atheist, and that those experiences can be a bridge that help you to connect with people. So what I want us to do just briefly, is to listen to one of the Screwtape Letters. Uh, That's not to say this is the only one that's good, believe me. (laughs) Screwtape Letters is not a book that people usually think of as an apologetics book. We usually think Mere Christianity is the apologetics book. But Screwtape I think in some ways is an even better apologetics book than Mere Christianity. And the reason for that is all through Screwtape is the whole psychology of temptation and understanding the difference between what is right and what is wrong. What does it mean to have a good life versus what does it mean to be deceived? And for those of you that are not familiar with Screw Tape had its origins in the Church of the Holy Trinity and headed in Quarry uh, near Lewis's home in Oxford. And he went faithfully to this church even though it was kind of renowned as a parking lot for clergy that were not very good preachers. And this particular Sunday, the preacher was giving what was, in Lewis's mind, a very boring sermon. And so he tuned out and started scribbling on the back of an envelope, and he had the idea of what would happen if you came up with a mythical series of letters from one devil to another devil about how to try to tempt humans. And he wrote a letter to his brother about that idea. And his brother said, I think that's probably worth pursuing. And the result of that is the screw tape letters. And so in the letters, you have Wormwood, who's this junior devil who's kind of in training. Uh, and then you have Screw tape, who is the uncle who is um, high up in the hierarchy of hell or low down, and
1: yeah, whichever. Uh,
0: So he is uh, trying to instruct Wormwood about how to tempt this patient. And the patient is sort of teetering on the idea of becoming a Christian, but hasn't become one um, when the story starts off. And so there's this back and forth with the patient and the way that they're trying to lure him away from faith and the people that they put in his life and all this. But it's very, very, very instructive. But part of what it does is it points out so many of the foibles of the human race. And it makes you, when he talks about the things of the kingdom of God, even as a devil, it makes you see their beauty in a way that you don't because it's such a different perspective. So, uh, there's a handout that is screw Tape Letter 13, and if I can get it to work, we're going to listen uh, to a recording of John Cleese from Monty Python uh, reading this letter. So, and I want you to be alert for what this says. There's a theology of pleasure in this letter um, that is important.
1: Letter 13. My dear Wormwood, it seems to me that you take a great many pages to tell a very simple story. The long and the short of it is that you have let the man slip through your fingers. The situation is very grave, and I really see no reason why I should try to shield you from the consequences of your inefficiency. A repentance and renewal of what the other side call grace on the scale which you describe is a defeat of the first order. It amounts to a second conversion, and probably on a deeper level than the first. As you ought to have known, the asphyxiating cloud which prevented your attacking the patient on his walk back from the old mill is a well-known phenomenon. It is the enemy's most marvellous weapon and generally appears when he is directly present to the patient under certain modes not yet fully classified. Some humans are permanently surrounded by it and therefore inaccessible <laughs> to us. And now for your blunders. On your own showing, you first of all allowed the patient to read a book he really enjoyed because he enjoyed it and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his new friends. In the second place, you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have tea there, a walk through country he really likes, and taken alone. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant? As not to see the danger of this. The characteristic of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real. And therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. Thus, if you had been trying to damn your man by the romantic method, by making him a kind of child harold or verter, submerged in self-pity for imaginary distress, you would try to protect him at all costs from any real pain. Because, of course, 5 minutes genuine toothache would reveal the romantic horrors of a nonsense they wear and unmask your whole (laughs) packaging. But you were trying to damn your patient by the will, that is, by off vanity, buffle, irony, and expensive tedium as pleasures. How can you have failed to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? Didn't you foresee that it would just kill, by contrast, all the trumpery which you have been so laboriously teaching him to value, and that the sort of pleasure which the book and the walk gave him was the most dangerous of all, that it would peel off from his sensibility the kind of crust you have been forming on it, and make him feel that he was coming home, recovering himself? As a preliminary to detaching him from the enemy, you wanted to detaching from himself, and had made some progress in doing so. Now, all that is undone. Of course, I know that the enemy also wants to detach men from themselves, but in a different way. Remember, all that he really likes them, but and sets an absurd <laughs> value on the distinctness of every one of them. When he talks of their losing their selves, he means only abandoning the clamour of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts, I'm, I'm afraid, sincerely, that when they are holy, his, they will be more themselves than ever. Hence, while he is delighted to see them sacrificing even their innocent wills, it is, he hates to see them drifting away from their own nature for any other reason, and we should always encourage them to do so. The deepest likings and impulses of any man are the raw material, the starting point with which the enemy has furnished him. To get him away from those is therefore always a point gained. Even in things indifferent, it is always desirable to substitute the standards of the world or convention or fashion, or a human's own real likings and dislikings. I myself would carry this very far. I would make it a rule to eradicate from my affection any strong personal taste which is not actually a sin. Even if it is something quite trivial, such as a fondness for cricket, or collecting stamps, or drinking cocoa, such things, I grant you, have nothing of virtue in them. But there is a sort of innocence and humility and self Forgetfulness about them, which I distrust. The man who truly and disinterestedly enjoys any one thing in the world for its own sake, and without caring what other people say about it, is, by that very fact, or armed against some of our subtlest modes of attack. You should always try to let the patient abandoned abandon people or food or books he values in favour of the best people, the right food. The important books I have known a human, defended from strong temptation to social ambition by a still stronger taste for white and ugly. It remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster. The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Let the little brute wallace, let him, if he has any better way, write a book about it. That is often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy plants in a human soul. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Your
0: (laughs) affectionate uncle, Screwtape, letter So uh, if you've never read Screwtape Letters, you have a great treat in store for yourself. It is really a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous book. And I commend it to you uh, to be read from the standpoint of apologetics because we don't often think of it that way, but there is so much wisdom in that book about how to reach out to people, how to understand the sorts of things that are going on in people's minds, and it's also a great book if you form a relationship with someone to suggest, why don't we read this book together and talk about it? It's a very non-threatening kind of book. Uh, so that is uh, certainly something to think about doing. So was there anything in that letter that struck you particularly as interesting? Any thoughts on that? The,
1: the sarcasm, I lot. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. Sarcasm is great. The danger of pure pleasure. Yes, yes, the danger of pure pleasure. So if pure pleasure is dangerous for the devil, what does that mean for the Christian? Mm-hmm. Right, it is to be pursued. Pure pleasure is to be pursued. Beauty is to be pursued. Things that you are passionate about are to be pursued. And if you share those with other people, that gives you a natural bridge. Good. What else? I want
1: to-
0: best people in the right food and mm-hmm. important books
1: can take the place of that. So you just go to the right, you know. Do you, th- do you think that happens?
0: Yeah. <laughs> what did, you know, did she I didn't hear her. <laughs> mean, what about yeah. yeah. What did say? Oh, yeah. No. To be she say? She said that. that the, the mm-hmm. idea about substituting instead of what you like, going to eat the right food, reading the right books, and hanging out with the right people instead of the ones that you enjoy Um you know, make all of the difference. So that I think is another just really great point. And our culture is one that's so based on appearances that it's very easy for us to get dragged into that.
1: Anyway, first. <laughs> yes. Um, this might just really be a little one, but at the top of the page on the back. Mm-hmm. And that the sort of pleasure which the book and the walk gave him was the most dangerous of all, that it would peel off from his sensibility the kind of crust you have been forming on it and make him feel. For me, that jumps out because when my mother got vascular dementia, she had a very crusty side to her that had kind of come, built on like granulated tissue from a certain bitterness. Mm -hmm. And when she was... Only a few months from dying, she became like a child. And the amazing thing is she became a Christian. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, and I have said several times, many times, that it was like her crusty exterior began to, to sort of melt mm-hmm, away.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to
1: me, that jumped out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, and you will see um, that that jumped out to me, too, because that's the one that's in the PowerPoint. Um, oh, okay. But I think that, um, yeah, we'll come back to that. So, good. What else? struck anyone? I think yes, Dorothy. Write a book
1: about it, and that was often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds. Of the <laughs>
0: Yes. <Yeah, laughs> so, what do you think that means? Well, Writing a book about it would sterilize the seeds. The enemies. We to dissect. Yeah. Instead of taking action and having personal conversation and relationship, just to write our own thoughts down. Right. Yeah. Because it essentially removes you from relationship. I think that's exactly right. And instead of putting the focus on what God has done, it changes the focus onto you. Yeah, yeah. good. Experience. How many people are Right, right, yeah. yeah. But C.S.
1: Lewis wrote so many books. He did, he did. <laughs> he did, he did.
0: And I can tell you one of the things that I love about C.S. Lewis is that C.S. Lewis is probably mortified in heaven right now that we're in here talking about him. He would think that was terrible. So... Um, but there, there's so much in here. I really commend to you these two handouts tonight, um, the Letters to Malcolm one and the Screwtape letter one, because if you can get a hold of what's in these two, it will begin to transform your thinking in some ways that I think are really important in this apologetic sphere. And this little quotation up here uh, I think is so important in the world of apologetics. The characteristic of pains and pleasures, is that they are unmistakably real. Where is that? That is... Oh, the third Yeah. And therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. And when you talk to people today, a lot of times one of the things they really want is what's real, what's authentic, What's something that is dependable, that I can experience with my senses? Um, And a real pleasure would peel off from his sensibility the kind of crust you have been forming on it and make him feel he was coming home, recovering himself. And that's another way of saying that what the devil does is to put this crust on us, to put this cynicism on us, To put this, oh, whatever, you know, that we're not going to be ever enthusiastic about anything because that would be uncool and it would show that we cared. And Lewis has another great letter in Screwtape about flippancy and how he believes that if you can teach flippancy, that is to not take anything seriously, you put that person on the highway to hell, that that sin alone will protect you. From whatever work God the Holy Spirit might be trying to do in your heart, because you will never be able to see it because of your flippant attitude. But the point here is that real pleasure, things that are those shafts of glory, the beauty like we are seeing outside, those kinds of things are pure and they are real and they can be observed with our senses. And you can observe them with someone else and then enter into dialogue about that in a way that uh, helps you to relate to that person in a way that would never happen if you were like trying to share the four spiritual laws with them it's just it 's just a very, very different way of looking at sharing your faith and remember that quotation from two weeks ago that I still have to go look up who actually said this. There's a lot of controversy about who said it. But that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that when we begin to have that understanding of what it means to share our faith, you will be amazed how God brings people to your life. Yes?
1: I also think it's very ironic that he always says "Your affectionate
0: uncle. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, that is very ironic. And one of the things you will learn when you get to the end of it is it means he wants to eat him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the <laughs> devils consume one another. I mean, he wants to eat him. Who wants to eat who? <laughs> <laughs> tape wants to devour his nephew. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that later. All right, so your homework assignment... Your homework assignment is to consider cultivating how you see. So try to take, even if it's five minutes, and just focus on one thing, whether it's a tree or a sunset or a flower. And I know you probably think this sounds crazy, but this is deeply steeped in the Christian tradition, and we've lost this. Our culture has lost it, and we need to find it again because it's important. So if you can do that five minutes a day, and then consider how that might relate to conversations in the category of apologetics. So keep that in the back of your mind. Um, We are out of time, so let let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God of truth and beauty and goodness and that despite all of what is evil and sad and tragic and broken in this world of ours, there also, if we will choose to look for it, is deep beauty and truth and goodness. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold with wonder your creation, and that we would behold with wonder the pleasures that you build into this life, and that through appreciating those and seeing them through the eyes of others, we might build bridges of relationship to those who are made in your image, those whom Screwtape says he really loves the little vermin. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love those who are made in your image, that we might share the word of life with them. We thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.